chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. As we're making our way through this wonderful gospel. I'm going to pick it up at verse 45 of 19, actually, just so we get uh, reminded of the context. Uh, Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, verse 28 and following. Uh, He weeps over Jerusalem, uh, verses 41 through 44, as he knows the destruction that's coming, the judgment of God that is coming, and grieves um, because he's a loving Savior and, and would that he could have gathered them together as, as a chicken gathers her hen, or as a hen gathers her chickens, but they would not. And uh, this morning we are uh, going to then see Jesus um, as he continues now moving towards the cross and uh, in a confrontation with the leaders. So uh, verse 45, and he entered the temple, 45 of chapter 19. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of uh, the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priest and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. And so they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And so, and he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son, perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them. And said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you that he endured this torment and opposition and persecution as he made his way to the cross, but did it, Lord, for our sake. And so, Lord, help us to see his goodness and his truth this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, this morning in our text, we're entering a war zone, as you noted. Uh, this, um, this is a confrontation between the powers of hell and Jesus Christ himself. As men gather together, Psalm 2, if you remember, a, a favorite psalm of the early church, wherefore do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? They gather themselves together against the Lord and against his anointed. And that's exactly what's happening here in Luke chapter 20. Uh, the fury of the re- uh, religious leaders has finally come to a boiling point. Uh, they are intent on destroying Jesus. They don't know how they're going to do it yet. Uh, um, uh, obviously, they don't realize that the sovereign God has a plan. He knows exactly how it's going to happen. But at this moment, uh, they think they are in charge of the situation, and they are simply uh, seeking a way now to get rid of Jesus. This is the Jesus that had just wept over them as he came into the city. The Jesus who was in their very presence, teaching in their temple courts. But they refused to receive him. And so we're going to just follow the text through as we see our Lord um, facing this opposition and um, the, just the wonderful strength and dignity of Christ as he made his way to the cross for us. Uh, the challenge we read in verse 1, Jesus is preaching the gospel in the temple. Uh, the gospel hadn't been preached in the temple there for a very, very long time. The temple was a place where you uh, did what the leaders told you to do in order to make yourself right with God or in order to just uh, show that you were a good son of Abraham and therefore deserving of God's favor. And, and Jesus came preaching a gospel, good news. Uh, that God was willing to grant forgiveness to sinners all by grace and through faith in Christ. And it is this message of good news, the gospel, that was offensive to these leaders, offensive to the chief priests, and it's offensive still today. I had experience of that just this past week. We were a bunch of us down in um, Indianapolis for the Gospel Coalition Conference. I was there with a bunch of young people and and uh, some uh, chaperones, and we were walking down the sidewalk during lunch break downtown Indy with a crowd of uh, folks from the conference. And uh, standing at the doorway of of one of the restaurants was a young lady, probably um, early twenties. Uh, she had menus in her hand. She was dressed in the attire of, of that establishment. And her, her job, uh, ostensibly, was to invite people to come in and eat at the restaurant. That's, that's why she was there. Well, as uh, Josh and I walked past, um, she said in this really mocking voice, uh, Please, come and tell us about Jesus. We need to be saved. We need Jesus. Just a really snarky voice that was just shocking, not, not expected. As, as, we, as we continued along, um, Josh made the comment that as a marketing strategy, there was something lacking. I did, not sure if this was going to be an effective strategy for the young lady as she's mocking the people that she's supposed to be inviting in. But what struck me is that uh, I, didn't, I just tried to think of a single other demographic in the entire world that would have gotten that response from that lady. 
You could have paraded Muslim clerics and Buddhist monks and a political party of any stripe, any, any social issue that she maybe would have disagreed with. And I think she would have been able to control whatever her convictions were and actually do what she was asked to do, which is invite people into the restaurant. But when it came, when it came to Christians, when it came to Jesus, she could not restrain herself and felt compelled to mock those she was supposed to be serving. What is it about Jesus that drives people crazy? What is it about the gospel of salvation that brings forth this kind of ridicule and contempt? Well, it's exactly what we see happening here in our text as well. The, the, the religious leaders hate Jesus because he's threatening their power, but they hate him for reasons they don't even understand. There's a visceral response of animosity and enmity and hatred as they see this man um, helping the poor and, and healing the sick and preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. It, it infuriated them. And so they come to Jesus here and they ask him a question. By what authority do you do these things? Who gave you this authority? To preach this message. That's not a bad question. It's a very good question, actually. Because, you see, the question of authority uh, is a question. It's a legitimizing question. Is this a legitimate ministry of God, or, or is it just an illegitimate ministry of men? Uh, boys and girls, you can understand the dynamics of that. Maybe if, if you're upstairs playing in your room, and you have your best friends over, and you're having a great time, and your little brother breaks through the door and says, you have to come downstairs right now. Well, I think a question that's going to come to your mind is, I mean, who are you? On what authority? Do you, what right do you have to come in our room and, and command us to do anything? But it, you see, if he, if he says, mom said, well, it changes everything. Now he's under authority. And, and to refuse him, you see, is to refuse her. And then there's, uh, there's this other guy that uh, backs her up. And you don't want to mess with that, so... Downstairs you go. That's how it's supposed to work. That's an authority issue. It's a legitimacy issue. And so um, one of the complaints that God had of the, old, of the false prophets in the Old Testament is that I didn't send them. They're not legitimate. They don't speak my words. They have, they have not been authorized to speak for me. But Jesus, of course, is the supreme prophet of God, the, the supremely sent one. And, and throughout his ministry, he made that clear. I don't say anything except what the Father gives me to say. I don't do anything except what the Father tells me to do. All of his, his words and particularly his miraculous works were meant to legitimize, to show the, the authorization that was upon him. So when he cast out demons, people said, this must be a man of God. Who could do this except a man of God when he, when he healed the lepers and, and made the lame, the blind to see? So everything he said and did pointed to this. And the issue of authority had come up before. If you remember the story where uh, the, this paralyzed man was on a mat and, and his friends decided to cut a hole in the roof of the building and let him down in front of Jesus. And Jesus said to him, your sins are forgiven you. And the religious people in the crowd were aghast. 
Who has authority to forgive sins except God? Who does this man think he is? And Jesus responds beautifully, looks directly at them and says, so that you might know that the Son of Man, that's who I am, you can read about it in Daniel, so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise up and walk. He proves the truth of what is unseen as he gives them a visible testimony of it. So it's a good question. But it is not a sincerely asked question. It's not a sincerely asked question. You see, they're not looking for information. They're looking for ammunition. If they were looking for information, they had all the information they could possibly want in the words and works of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus, if you remember, uh, denounced the cities of Galilee in particular. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If If the works that were performed in you had been done in the pagan godless cities of Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in dust and ashes long ago. The problem here is not a lack of information. The problem here is a wicked, stone-cold, demonic heart. That's the problem. These men were evil. And so Jesus responds to them in a way that he would not respond to to a sincere uh, seeker. He he answers them uh, with a question. I will also ask you a question. Game is on. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Here's another question about authority. Was John's baptism legitimate, his ministry of baptism of repentance, calling people to repent of their sin? Was that a legitimate ministry, or was, it, was John just kind of doing his own thing out there in the desert, dressed in his funny clothes? Uh, what is it? Well, they immediately recognize that Jesus has them cornered. <laughs> they're, they're not dumb. They, re, they, they, they get together and they say, if we admit that John's ministry was authentic, that it was authorized of God, then he's going to say, then why didn't you believe him? Because John was the one that pointed at Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And everybody will wonder, well, if you guys think that John's baptism was legitimate, his ministry was authorized, and and John, as a prophet of God, pointed at Jesus and said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, why are you opposing him? You see, they they would be exposed immediately as, as men who are opposing God. So we cannot say it's from heaven. Well, then someone says, well, let's say it's from from Man. And his friends would look at him and say, have you lost your mind? Look at the crowds. They're convinced John was a prophet, and he'd just been martyred a while back, remember? And they, uh, they adore the man. They're convinced he's a, there's no way, if we say John has an illegitimate ministry, they'll stone us. So let's go back and tell him we don't know. And so that's what they do. They reply, we don't know. The, the drama here, the dynamics of this are just so rich. So Jesus says, it's not that you don't know, it's just you refuse to answer the question, so I won't answer your question. Then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He's just exposed, you see, the lie. They're not interested in a question of authority, they're just interested in opposing him. They're just looking for something to charge him with. 
Their, their question was, was, was just a fruit of their wicked heart. It was asked in the service of the devil, not in the service of the truth. And Jesus doesn't owe the devil anything. And so he doesn't answer the question. It doesn't deserve an answer. It deserves condemnation, and that's exactly what it receives. As Jesus moves on to the parable, verses 9 through 18. Now, the parables, as you know, uh, were often difficult to understand. Jesus would tell a parable, and the disciples would be like, could you tell us what that means? We, I don't, what, 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 what were you saying? Uh, this is not one of those parables. Uh, this is a parable that comes uh, like a two before across the face. That's uh, in verse 19 of chapter 20. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So they get it. Maybe not Im- immediately, but by the end of it, they'll know what he's talking about. It's a very simple parable in a, uh, set in a context that would be very familiar to, to them. The, it's a parable about a vineyard. A man planted a vineyard. There were vineyards all over the place. And it was a good vineyard. He, he built a, Matthew tells us in his gospel that the vineyard owner, uh, he built a wall around it. He built a watchtower. He built a wine press. This was a very nicely supplied. There was nothing lacking in this vineyard. Everything that a man could want was there. And then he leased the vineyard to tenants, as was commonly done, and went uh, off to another country. Now, some of these men may have been just this kind of landowner. They know uh, how this works. And so they would feel the moral outrage of what happened. Because the owner sent a servant to go collect the rent. That's what he's doing. Every year, a certain percentage of the crop would be given to the, uh, the owner. And so the servant goes to collect that, uh, that payment. Um, but they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. That is not how tenants are supposed to treat the servants of the landowner. But the landowner uh, sends a second servant, and they do the very same thing to him, and, and then he sends another servant, and they also beat him and treat him shamefully and send him away empty-handed. Now, if you are a Jewish landowner, if you are a, a part of the wealthy class, as these men were, and you heard this story, I mean, you're ready to punch somebody. This is outrageous. This is completely over the top. Such a thing has never been done in Israel. You, the, 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 the moral outrage that they would experience about this story, um, it, it's visceral. They can feel it. Uh, but the story takes a, this surprising turn. When, when you would expect the landowner to respond with immediate Um, total judgment, devastation, and destruction. It's not what the landowner does. He sends his son, his own son, his only son, we know, from the Gospel of Mark. His beloved son, Jesus says here in Luke chapter 20. He sends his beloved son to these wicked, vile men. There is no justification for what they've done. In the light of the master's grace to them, for them to continue their wickedness is just, it's just unbelievable. And yet the master, in an astonishing display of grace and patience, decides to send his only son, his beloved son, perhaps they will listen to him. 
Now, if the servants were, a, a rep, if they represented the owner, the son is an extension of the owner. This is, in a sense, the owner in person coming to them. It's the most precious possession of the master. If you are a parent, you know that there are many crimes that people uh, could commit against you, but surely the most awful crimes, the most painful crimes are committed against our children. As, as a parent, you'd, you'd rather suffer whatever they suffer a, a thousand times rather than your child be, be victimized in some way. It's a, it, it's, it, it's a staggering wound, and, and that's what happens here. Not only does the master's gracious response fail to produce repentance, it just emboldens them in their wickedness. So when the son shows up, they, they say, this is the heir. Let's kill him so that we can have the vineyard to ourselves. And so that's what they do. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Stealing the vineyard from the owner at the cost of the, the death of the son. It's an astonishing story. And then Jesus asks the devastating question, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? In Matthew's gospel, uh, Matthew says that the, the men themselves responded. And I'm sure they did. That does not mean that Jesus didn't. I'm sure Jesus did as well. But when, when Jesus asked this question, the, the, they couldn't help themselves. And they, and they break in, forth and they, say, and they say, well, he will put those wretches to a wretched death. That's what he'll do. And then he'll lease the vineyard to others. And Jesus affirms, you, you see, that answer exactly what will happen. But it's, Jesus asks the question that needs to be asked, doesn't he? What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? That is the, that is the question of history. It's the question that has to be answered. It has to be answered and will be answered one way or the other. The master will do something. This is God's good creation. And he made men and women in his own likeness and called them to do his will and gave them everything they could possibly need to work in his vineyard for his glory. And men instead despised the owner, despised his servants, and put his son to death. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Jesus says he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. <clears throat> now it's clear that at this point they understand the story. They realize what Jesus is talking about. You see, because not only is, is, uh, is this a question that goes out to all the world, this question of what shall the owner do uh, applies in a very specific way to Israel because in Isaiah chapter 5, uh, we, the prophet sings a song. Let me, I mean, he says, uh, let me sing a song for my beloved concerning his vineyard. 
My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He, he dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? And when I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will command the clouds and they shall not rain upon it. That's Isaiah 5. These men know that text. They know the story. Israel is God's vineyard. And he sent his servants, the prophets, to, to call uh, the leaders particularly of the vineyard to come and give to God the, the glory that was due to him, the, the obedience, the covenant faithfulness that they owed to him. And yet, and yet they, what did they do to the prophets? They, they stoned them. They killed the prophets. And then, so they know the story, and they know who the servants are, and they know who Jesus is claiming to be. He's been claiming it all along, that he's the son. They know who Jesus is, and and they know who they are. They're the wicked tenants. There's no escaping what Jesus is saying. They're the wicked tenants. Intent on killing the son. Jesus knows what they're trying to do. He knows the desire, the tent of their heart. And this parable then is from Isaiah chapter 5. Jesus clearly expressing that God is going to bring destruction on them, that God is going to renounce them as his people, that God's going to take this vineyard, he's going to give it to someone else. Well, guess who the someone else is? If you're a Jew, the only someone else are Gentiles. And that's why they respond with this aghast response, surely not. Surely not. That will never happen. And then verse 17, but he looked directly at them. Can you imagine Jesus Christ, the Son of God, looking directly at these men and said, what then is this that is written? He responds to the devil in the, in the wilderness with what is written, and now he responds to the devil in these men with the word of God. What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is taken from Psalm 118. It's a, it's a Hillel psalm, a psalm that people would sing as they made their way to Passover and during the Passover week. People would be singing it even now, right, as Jesus is speaking this. These men, they know these words. They know these words like the back of their hand, and yet they don't know what they mean. And now Jesus tells them what it means. This Psalm 118, what then is it that is written? I'm the stone that you are rejecting and God is going to make the cornerstone. Psalm 18 is talking about you, the builders, you rejecting the stone, the chosen and precious cornerstone of God. That's what's, that's what's happening here. 
And the word rejected here, it's a, it's a, it's a word that means to reject after careful examination, to, to carefully examine something, inspect it. You see, when, when a builder would cut a stone, it would have to be examined, particularly the cornerstone, are all the angles exactly correct because you're going to build a building on the basis of that stone. And Jesus is saying the builders, after careful examination, have rejected the stone. And so the question again is, why? What was wrong with it? Did they catch Jesus in a, in a lie? Did they uh, discover that he was a fraud? Did they um, find out that the miracles were a hoax? The blind men weren't really blind? The lepers weren't really leprous? Is it that his, his teaching was contrary to the scripture? And of course, none of that was true. All of Jesus' words rang true. All of his works were authentic. His miracles, irrefutable evidence of all that he was saying. He was publicly declared by Pilate to be without fault. And yet they rejected him. Unworthy, judged him unworthy and unfit for use in building the kingdom of God. There's a song that captures the, the astonishment of this, the uh, we're going to sing it after the sermon, actually. My song is love unknown. And, and the lyrics go, what has my Savior done? What makes this rage and spite? He made the lame to run. He gave the blind their sight. Sweet injuries. In other words, if, if those are his crimes, those are sweet crimes, Sweet injuries, yet they at these themselves displease and against Christ rise. You see, the truth is there's no fault in Christ whatsoever. He is the spotless Lamb of God. All the fault is their own. They hated him precisely because he was from God, because he was the, the chosen and precious cornerstone upon whom God was going to build his kingdom, and he was preaching a gospel of grace. That's why they hated him. And that's why they had him put away. This verse from Psalm 18, 118, this very text that Jesus quotes here, became a very important verse for the early church. This is a, a, a verse that they would quote over and uh, over again. Peter uses it in his very first sermon in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. He, uh, Peter speaks of it again in 1 Peter, his, his epistle. Uh, you see, this is, it's a critical verse because you're in a world as a Christian and you you see and realize the world hates Jesus. And how do you make sense of that? The Jesus that you heard about, the Jesus that you've come to believe in is a Jesus who made the lame to walk and, and made the blind to see and, and who spoke this amazing message of truth and grace. Why does the world hate Jesus? Well, Jesus, you see, names it here. The world hates Jesus because he is the sent one of God and he was preaching a gospel of grace that, that, that challenges and devastates and destroys human pride. That's, that's why they hate Jesus. So when the, when the girl is standing at the doorway mocking, uh, we need to be saved, we need Jesus, what it actually is is a challenge. Don't you dare tell me I need to be saved. Don't you dare tell me I need a Jesus. 
Jesus says the world will hate us, and it's true. It's because they hate him. It's not personal in that sense. They hate Jesus. At least the real Jesus. The world is willing to live with a, a Jesus who's about other things. They can live with a, a, a social gospel Jesus. They can live with Jesus, the life coach, who helps you live a fulfilling uh, a life. A Joel Osteen's Jesus, who helps you live your best life now. That will sell. Uh, there will be no offense there. But the real Jesus, the Jesus of the gospel, the one who came from God to live an obedient life and die an atoning death because there was no other way that you you, the sinner, could be rescued from the wrath of God that you deserve. That Jesus is rejected. And it's just the evidence of the wickedness of the human heart. And our own heart, unless God intervenes. But you see, it's critical that God does intervene because this very Jesus that, that people by nature reject and despise, this Jesus is the eternally approved chosen one of God. The very one that men cast aside defiantly. The one that they judge and crucify as a blasphemer. This is the very one that God says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And so the world's view of Jesus and God the Father's view of Jesus are profoundly different. God says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so, friend, the, the question for you this morning is, is, will you? Are you? What are you doing with Jesus? That's the question. Because you only have two options. You either reject him or you will receive him. And you can reject him in countless ways. You can reject him by being in church every single Sunday. And acknowledging all the truth as you, as you receive it or as you sort of understand it. But yet when it comes to the way you're going to live your life, you're just going to live your life. Or maybe you'll reject Jesus by believing. Um, but, but you don't love the Lord. You're not, you're not hungry for him, and, and nor, nor are you really hungry to be made like him. You're not, you're not hungry to see him. And, and in fact, you, you take your church going and your, any moral attempts that you make or moral successes that you have, and you, and you sort of hold on to that as your righteousness. You can reject Jesus by being a religious person just as thoroughly as you can reject Jesus by being a vile person. But you can only reject him or receive him. And if we reject him, Jesus tells us what will happen. Verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Notice how the story began. They were seeking to destroy him. Notice how it ends. They're destroyed by him. To fight against the Lord Jesus Christ is, is absolutely to fight a losing battle. A devastating battle. And so the point for us this morning is just, once again, what will, we, what will you do with Jesus? What are you doing with Jesus? He is God's precious cornerstone. You're not going to do an end run to God around Jesus Christ. There is one way that you can be received by the Father, that I can be received, and that is through Jesus Christ. And I know that is offensive to Muslims. I know it's offensive to Buddhists. I know it's offensive, it's offensive to, to any sort of spiritual religion that might be out there. Um, it's the truth. Never apologize for Jesus' gospel. It's good news. We have to deal with Jesus. But 
then also glory in Jesus. Glory in this gospel. You see, it is a, it is a light yoke to follow Jesus Christ. You want a heavy yoke? Go your own way. Do your own thing. Live for yourself and live according to your agenda, and you will know what a yoke feels like. But if you would like a light yoke, then glory in Jesus Christ. His, lo- his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And this Jesus, whom we crucify by our sin, this Jesus invites you and me today to be just all the more serious about him. We live in a world that despises him. Do you realize that the only time the world speaks the name of Jesus Christ is when they're cursing? or laughing, or mocking. Don't let, don't let yourself just get numb to that. Don't just get accustomed to that. Glory in this Jesus, this beautiful, precious, chosen cornerstone of God. Glory that in this Jesus, God is making you a temple of the living God where God himself will dwell. And, and, and don't let anything within you or without you despise that name. Glory in this Jesus and glory in his gospel. He's a precious cornerstone. Amen. Well, God in heaven, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that he came for us, the wicked tenants. He came though we had despised you, the creator of heaven and earth. And you sent your son and and he went to the cross for our sin and gave us his life. And Lord, forgive us for all the ways that we, that we join the world in despising him or, or we get numb and accustomed to it. Forgive us for failing to glory in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that in these days ahead as we remember again, particularly his death and resurrection, Lord, that there would be a beautiful sanctifying power in, thou, in those truths, that we would hate our sin, that we would, Lord, turn our back on the, um, the wickedness of the world, not, against, not, not our backs on sinners, but that we would be bold in calling them to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. But Lord, let that begin in our own life, our own heart, our own home, where Jesus is precious to us. This beautiful Christ is more and more the treasure of our heart, what we love, what we live for, what we long for so that we're made useful as the vineyard of God, that we are bearing fruit for the glory of God. As we live in his grace, abundant grace, and minister that grace to others. Oh God, make it so. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.